And I raised you. <laughs> hey, Harry, you in? Sure, I'm in. Seems the Friday Night Poker Club has never seen anything like Pringles' newfangled potato chips. Get a load of this. Potato chips? They're made a new way. See, they fit in a stack, like poker chips. A newfangled way to help Fortune 500 companies find success. If you're a large company, what you know is that there are a ton of startups biting at your heels, going after one little slice of your business, and the only way for you to be able to compete with them, to go and transform what you do, is if you can go quickly. I have an environmental background. It's just an important passion of mine, and I realized that alcohol was an amazing way to bring people together around a story that really matters. This is the Language of Business, a podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs or anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work from people who've been there and done that. Our host is Gregory Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, we look at newfangled businesses, hourly nerd a software company that helps Fortune 500 companies find success. The name didn't work, but the idea exploded. Plus wines, Sauvignon Blanc from California, Pinot Noir from Oregon, that not only taste great, they help save oysters, sea turtles, and bees. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. How do you make a Fortune 100 company start functioning as a startup? We're on location here with co-founder and co-CEO Patrick Petiti at Catalan Technologies, and welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to talk. How did this morph from a class project into what you see right now? Well, that's a long story. That's about a seven-year story. <laughs> um, but the way we started was, um, you know, my experience was I worked at a large consulting firm. Right. And I often found that sometimes the big consulting firm was a good solution for the clients that we worked with. And sometimes they didn't really need this, like, big team of smart people. What they really needed was the person or the people who had solved the problem before. And they needed it fast. They didn't need to take the time it takes to ramp up a consulting team. And they needed it for a price that was a little bit more fair. Okay. Think about what it is today. Think about the number of digital transformations going on at large companies today. Think about how large companies are being disrupted at a rate at which they've never been disrupted before. Think about the pace of change today, the fact that it's faster than it's ever been before, and today is the slowest it will ever be again. If you're a large company, what you know is that there are a ton of startups biting at your heels, going after one little slice of your business, and the only way for you to be able to compete with them, to go and transform what you do, is if you can go quickly. You have to be able to go quickly because startups go quickly. What would they go and do if they had to do it. They're going to go like scour LinkedIn. They're going to hire some big consulting firm that's going to give them the same answer that that consulting firm is giving to their 10 competitors. It's going to take them a year to actually get to the answer. They don't have time. They don't have time. They need new skills that they've never had to have before. Maybe they're inside their company, maybe they're not, but their skills like digital. If you are a large oil and gas company, do you think you talked about digital five or 10 years ago? That wasn't even on the radar. Now, what do, what do all the large oil and gas companies talk about today? The fact that gas will not exist in some period of time, and they have got to figure out how they use digital technologies to better connect to their customers and find new opportunities to create value. So we started Hourly Nerd. It was very much focused on small businesses, um, hence the name, and we launched a marketplace, it took off, and we started to get press and you know customers from across the United States. And very quickly, 
basically what started to happen was large enterprises were showing up. They were creating accounts, but they weren't transacting. So in like a two-week window, 40 people from GE showed up and made accounts. People from Fidelity, from J&J, &J, from Pfizer, from all these large companies. But none of them would actually post a project on our marketplace. And we were curious. We were like, well, why? Like we, we believed that there was a ton of value to create at the enterprise level. And we knew that people who were signing up to do work on our marketplace really wanted to work with these big brands. But we couldn't figure out why it was that they weren't engaging anybody. So we went and we just talked to them. Like sure. we've, we've always prided ourselves on being extremely customer centric and not letting our business model, our existing product, our technology, our positioning get in the way of delivering value to a customer. So we went and we talked to all those customers. And what we found was that across the board, they all had the same problem. They wanted to be able to leverage the high end of the labor market, of the freelance economy. We, we tend to play with people who have worked at large consulting firms. But someone thinks, Pat, of freelancing yeah. as being graphic design <laughs> or stuff of that ilk. You're talking about strategy consulting totally. other business service freelancing. How does that work? Oh, there's all kinds of freelancers. So I think a lot of people miss the fact that many people who, who leave Bain, McKinsey, BCG, Deloitte, Accenture, KPMG, and many of these great consulting firms, they don't leave to go to a large company. Many of them often leave to start their own like one or two person shop. Sure. So sometimes it might look like a boutique consulting firm, but in effect, what they're trying to do is what everybody in the freelance economy is trying to do. Take more control over your life. Not let a job dictate how you live your life. Live the life you want, fit work in, and be able to choose the things that you work on. And so really the same exact thing is happening across the spectrum of the labor economy, whether it's at more what you might call more commoditized work, all the way up to work that is highly, highly strategic and requires really deep expertise. So give us an example of your most popular project beyond classic strategy consulting. Well, so like a great one is market research. Like I want to be able to plug into somebody who's already worked in an industry, who's launched a product in a certain geography, who has uh, worked at a certain type of company, and I want to be able to get them to come in and help me understand that market. And is it the law firm type model? We basically take a cut. So you come in, you say, hey, this is what I think I want to pay. The expert will tell you, well, this is how much work I'd actually have to do and what I would need to make, and we just take a small cut from the middle. And how many clients do you, are you able to support at one time? Oh, it's pretty unlimited. Like the beauty of our model is, um, and since day one, we've always focused very much on building a technology platform and figuring out how we can use technology to make the process of describing what you need, connecting to the right person as seamless as possible. So we can support, I mean, we work with 30% of the Fortune 1000. We work with 30% of the Fortune 100. We work with several thousand companies that fall outside of that size. And within those companies, we're working with anywhere from one to a couple thousand people. How do you and your co-founder, Rob, spend most of your time? Are you out there selling or are you here internally managing? It's definitely a combination of the two because I think you certainly, and we've always believed that you have to be really close to the customer. And for us, we have multiple types of customers. We have companies that are using our platform. Uh, we have senior executives at those companies who are thinking about our technology to help dramatically change the way they work. So a big part of what we do is not just plugging companies into the external marketplace. It's also helping companies use our software to organize their own employee base and deploy the right resources against the work so that they can execute against their strategic objectives. Our focus is truly just on executing against the opportunity in front of us. At the end of the day, what we believe is that there is a big problem with how companies get work done and how people work. And I think I, I hearken back to when I graduated from college. I got a job at a company and that company told me where I would work, which meant where I would live. They told me what I would work on, what days I would work, what hours I would work, and everything about my life was dictated by this company. 
And that is like so backward. Like we live in a world with technology. We live in a world where I can feel like I'm sitting across the table from somebody and they could be on the other side of the world. We live in a world where clearly technology is making it possible for me to find opportunities, whether they're like sitting across the face from me. I don't need to like pick up a classified ad and go walk into a building. And so that means that we live in a world where people should be able to live the life that they want and fit work in. And I think that's actually good for companies too. I don't think that's a challenge for companies at all. I think ideally you can do a better job of allocating what a company needs to the resources that exist in the world. Are you concerned that your clients are eventually gonna catch up to you and do it their own way? Try and build their own marketplace? Nah, I mean, I think just like we don't build our own computers because we have a lot of people who use computers here, like you focus on what you're good at. What we're really good at is building technology and helping companies solve these problems. What keeps you and Rob up at night right now about Catalan? Huh, it's a good question. I think um, the biggest thing to me is is we are, many startups are at risk because they could die of starvation. They can't find enough customers, they don't have enough money, they don't have enough opportunities to go and try and grow. For us, I always think about the fact that if we die, it's gonna be from overeating. It's gonna be because we are disrupting the way companies get work done and the way that people work. And so there are so many different places where we believe we can go and add value and we have so many customers who are asking us to come and help them in all these different ways. So for us, the real trick is how do you make sure that you focus on the right areas and you don't try and take on too much at once. If if you had to advise a first-time entrepreneur, what would be your single best piece of knowledge passing on? I would say, you know, I think the thing that would have helped us get to where we are today a lot faster is if we had ignored the existing business model that we'd created, we'd ignored you know, the technology that we thought we should create, and we just were singularly focused on being with a customer and helping those customers create value. Because oftentimes you come up with a great business model and you think it's the right one, you come up with a good platform, you come up with a good process, you think it's right, and then you try and force that process and that business model on your customer. So for us, we've actually made this pretty big transition from just being a marketplace to actually being a SaaS company. And that's because our customers wanted to have a different business model. They didn't want to necessarily pay entirely through marketplace transactions. They wanted to be able to put in place you know, a software solution that would help them get their work done better and faster. They wanted to be able to go and find their employees instead of people from our marketplace. And you can imagine like back then when that first occurred to us, we'd think to ourselves, well, gosh, if we give our customers our technology so they can better find their employees, does that mean they're not going to use our marketplace for those projects? And the answer is like probably sometimes. But the truth is, you have to be focused on the value that your customer needs. And if you deliver value to your customers, then everything else will fall into place. You can't, you can't worry about all the rest. Why the change from the name Hourly Nerd to Catalan? Good question. So Hourly Nerd, I think, worked really well when we worked with small businesses. The challenge with the name was what we would find as we started to work with larger enterprises were two big issues. Issue one, those companies would say immediately upon telling them the name of the company, well, we don't need the geek squad or we don't need like technicians. And then we'd say, nope, it's actually high-end business expertise, it's people who worked at some of the great consulting firms out there, people who worked in an operating role at a company, and they'd say, but you want me to tell my boss that we hired Hourly Nerd instead of a brand name consulting firm? And we're like, okay, we get it. And so enough of that, and we realized that the name, in spite of the fact that I think it was clever and it really worked well for, for small businesses, we wanted a name that we thought resonated the quality of the people who were working on the platform, and we wanted a name that talked more to the platform than it did just specifically about the people. And what does Catalan mean? Catalan stands for 
catalyzing brilliant talent. For us, it's about having a platform. It's a platform that really helps companies take advantage of the resources they have access to and get the work done better. You and your co-founders are five years out of business school. If you had to go through business school all over again, what would you have done differently? Oh man, I think we got lucky because we had a company that, that came out of it. I think taking advantage of some of the great professors and the experience that those professors have while you're there is actually really important. And it's pretty easy to kind of go to class and then like check out a class, walk off campus and forget about like the professors. When I think one of the most valuable things you have is the fact that these professors are there and they want to be able to give you like one-on-one -on -one time. They want to like dig into problems with you and you got to take advantage of that. I wish I took more advantage of that. Pat, thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Pat co-founder founder and co-CEO of Catalan Technologies. Doc, back to you. Thanks, Greg. Next up, a wine company dedicated to making your happy hours more celebratory. They help save oysters, sea turtles, and bees when the language of business continues. Our sponsor is Boston University Questrom School of Business. In partnership with EDX, Boston University Questrom School of Business is now offering an online MBA a top-tier business education available to learners around the world. It's a two-year program with a tuition of $24,000, far more affordable than typical on-campus programs. Interested? Get full details at bu.edu slash questrom. You're listening to the Language of Business look at newfangled businesses. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Imagine running a business where you give 13% of your revenue away. We're on location at the New England Aquarium with the co-founder and CEO, Brian Thurber, and welcome to Language of Business. Thank you. How does Proudpool work? So we support a network of 22 environmental nonprofits, including the New England Aquarium, with alcoholic beverages that are sustainably produced and high quality. So we have our three here. Uh, this is our Sauvignon Blanc from California. It supports wild oyster reef restoration, including in Massachusetts, wherever you buy it. Neat. Uh, this is our Oregon Pinot Noir for the bees. We plant okay. bee habitat on farms. Yep. And our latest, Cider for Sea Turtles, uh, supports New England Aquarium and other sea turtle hospitals across the U.S. When did you found the company? So my business partner gets all the credit for the sort of initial idea. Uh, Berlin Kelly's her name. Yep. She started in New York City in 2014. Okay. She was uh, really into the New York City Home Brewers Guild, doing a lot of fermentation as a hobby and a lot of friends starting wine and beer brands. And she saw a movie called Shell Shocked, which is about wild oyster reefs. Sure. And she realized she could tie that to delicious drinks for the planet. And that's what started our Sauvignon Blanc. And how did you arrive at 13% as being your nonprofit giveaway? Well, it, it's a little bit because we were outsiders. We kind of backed into it. We started giving away a lot of money to our partners, enough to restore 100 wild oysters per bottle and then plant 90 square feet of bee habitat. And it was 13% of revenue that did those numbers. So we've actually, it's allowed us to have a big impact. So we've restored 11 million oysters with the Sauvignon Blanc and 68 acres of wildflower habitat on farms. And where do you produce the wine and the cider? So we work with uh, very high quality producers across the US. Um, the wines are West Coast, so it's California Sauvignon Blanc and Oregon Pinot Noir. And the cider is actually local here in Massachusetts. And where do you find the nonprofits? And more importantly, how do the nonprofits find you? That's right. So we have, I have an environmental background and a law background. And uh, so worked in environmental nonprofits. And we actually, you know, we knew some of the best scientists working on wild oyster reef restoration. And we talked to a lot of people. We asked them, who do you really respect? Who's doing the best restoration work? And we went to the International Conference on Shellfish Restoration and just met everyone. We talked to everyone. 
And this is your full-time job. It is. And how did you decide to do this as your vocation? Well, so I have an environmental background, as I said. It's just an important passion of mine. And I realized that alcohol was an amazing way to bring people together around a story that really matters. By the way, the penguins seem to really like your answer, by the way. Yeah, we have, we have penguins <laughs> as neighbors. Uh, right. They're commenting a lot. Who do you view as your competition? A lot of winemakers and brewers will do one-off products for pet causes that they sure. care about. So it might be something like pet adoption or so there are a lot of one-off products that brands will do, but it's not really, and that's great, but it's not the central focus of their company, the sort of giving back to their partners. So I think we're pretty unique in that we are founded around this social environmental mission. I love it. I love it. What do you consider your exit strategy? We don't have one. We are going to become a Patagonia-level brand that sure. is touching people with really important environmental narratives and supporting all of this really important um, environmental work. So for instance, next year we're going to launch our Rosé for Reefs. It's going to be our Chardonnay for Sharks the year after that. So we're going to do everything. What keeps you up at night about the business while you might be feeding the fish? <laughs> so what keeps me up at night, we're bootstrapped. So we never took a check from an investor. It's just our small life savings put into the company. And that's been great because we, we can do this the way we want to do it. But it also means we don't have a ton of money in the bank. So we have to keep scrapping and kind of growing it organically. It's, it's definitely an interesting challenge. What would be one piece of advice that you have for an entrepreneur? I would say when you're going to do something, Try to do one thing different. So these are high quality, sustainable wines. And the thing we do that's different is trying to tie people into this environmental work. When you do one thing that's different, uh, it doesn't confuse people in the market. Can you see yourself doing this, say, 10 or 15 years in the future? I, I sure can. Yeah, I think that there's all sorts of room for exciting stuff for us to do. Brian, thank you. Congratulations on what you've accomplished so far. Thank you. Brian Thurber, co-founder and CEO of Proudport. Don, back to you. Thanks, Greg. And that's our podcast this week. Our sponsor is Boston University Questrom School of Business. We're available wherever you get podcasts. Or ask Alexa. And if you subscribe and give us a rating, it'll be a huge help. Or just tell a couple of friends. We now have downloads in 62 countries, 34 states plus D.C., and six provinces. Social media is by Jennifer Powell of Excellent Writers. Consulting producer Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Direction, audio editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.